give a couple, a minute or so for all the attendees to be able to register through. Okay, so um, good morning or good afternoon. Uh, welcome back to Lightshed Live. Uh, and we're very pleased to have uh, Durga Maladi with us from Qualcomm and Mauricio um, on the investor relations side to make sure that we're staying all copacetic with our investors. Um, and thanks for everyone for joining. Um, we spoke with Durga months ago um, and really focused on some very specific technology issues that have kind of come and gone in terms of DSS and you know that transition to 5G NR. I think this time, Durga, I'd like to start really from 10,000 feet and just talk about 5G overall. I mean, one of the companies that we look at, OpenSignal does speed tests and they do specifically now they're doing 5G speed tests. And if you look at just the 5G download experience that they that they viewed, um, you know the speeds are not really topping 100 megabits per second in the U.S. So this is I want to keep these comments specifically to the to the U.S. So when we think about the promise of 5G that the industry provided, whether it's the vendors or um, or the operators or, or whatnot, it, it seems like there was much faster speeds that were promised and latencies, uplink speeds um, as well, um, and also applications. I, I clearly, sometimes technology precedes applications. You, know, you could argue, I guess, that you know, who knows all the things that were going to be born out of LTE that, that occurred. But I'm just kind of, if you can just level set us with your kind of view on, like, how do you, where do you, how do you feel about where we are today? Um, with 5G, given some of these kind of early metrics that, that we're seeing from US operators that aren't that impressive and, and really lack of any applications um, that are driving incremental revenue. Okay. All right. So I'll, uh, uh, you know, immediately address the, uh, I'll get to the open signal portion first, but I'll just first try to uh, explain, uh, you know, where we are with 5G and, mm -hmm. and, and that'll probably give a good backdrop uh, to what we observe in the field today. So uh, we are actually now, if you kind of think about it, the earliest launches in spring of 2019, uh, we are now in year three of 5G. And uh, we've gradually transitioned from what used to be, uh, okay, use 4G as your anchor and wherever you see a 5G site, you latch onto that and you basically hang on to both. Uh, and depending upon which region of the world you are in, uh, you might have the high band or the millimeter wave bands where the data rates can be very high when you are in coverage of that site. Uh, or when you're in mid band, which is predominantly in the rest of the world, uh, the 3.5 gigahertz band, where you have a nice blend of both capacity and coverage. Or you could go all the way to the low band where you'll definitely see a 5G icon no matter where you are. Uh, but the data rates uh, are not going to be that high, but it's intended really for coverage. Uh, but 2019 to 2020 was really everything coming together in some sort of an asynchronous manner, someone launching with mid-band, someone launching with high-band, someone launching with low-bands. What we are seeing now uh, at this point in time is a consolidation of all of that, wherein those who started with the initial high-band rollout are now gravitating towards the mid and the low-bands as well, complementing their assets. Classic example of that would be someone like Verizon with the most recent uh, C-band auctions. They went from, you know, in addition to uh, uh, the high band millimeter wave, adding in the mid band as well. It's the right move. And similarly, uh, there is, uh, if you take the other extreme and actually take China as an example, as you probably are aware, in China, while they started off with the mid bands, but there is a gradual move towards uh, uh, what can we do with millimeter wave over there. So you start with uh, the mid band and now start adding in the high bands as well. So there is this consolidation that's occurring. You need to have all of the above. We've stated that from day one, you need to have all of the above. It's not just about only millimeter wave or only the low bands, but you need to have all of the above. In order to achieve the kind of the highest promises of 5G, the stuff that they grabbed headlines several years ago, um, are you going to have to be in the, the service area of millimeter wave spectrum or can a decent depth of mid-band spectrum deliver 
speeds that are notably different than had I just, as an operator, deployed that same spectrum with LTE technologies, because Verizon was doing quite well adding spectrum to LTE. Um, so like- uh, the, the quick answer to that is it depends upon the KPIs that we talk of. Remember that the promise of 5G, we've always maintained this. The promise of 5G is, is about very high data rates for some applications, very high average data rate. It's not just about the peak data rates, but very high sustained average data rates for some applications. Extremely good coverage for some other applications where you need reliability and latency. Nobody cares about the gigabit per second data rates over there, but it's about reliability and latency. Well, that's not going to happen with some of the high bands. Actually, you might be much better off in the mid and the low bands over there. And then mid bands come somewhere in between where it's a blend of both of these. So in that sense, our perspective still remains as follows. In extremely dense, high capacity areas, the best user experience that you're going to get is with millimeter wave. Extremely high data rates, but the data rates are really from a network standpoint. If you have hundreds of users concentrated in a given location, happens all the time in venues and campus environments, enterprise environments, whatnot. In those areas, if you were to actually take down uh, uh, get down to the bottom of it and say, what is the, my best possible experience, user experience from what I need? And no, I'm not referring to necessarily sustaining at 10 gigabits per second all the time. I'm perfectly fine if I'm getting a guaranteed 100 to 200 megabits per second, millimeter yep. is, the, is the right way to go about it. And in that sense, it's not so much about, hey, I seem to be getting only 100 or 200 megabits per second with millimeter wave. Yeah, that's because that's all that you need. Uh, you know, applications also have to consume that data. You can do a speed test. If you go to a site which has a millimeter wave and, uh, and in that region, if you do a speed test, you will see gigabit speeds very easily. If you run typical applications, well, the thing is that you don't necessarily need those extremely high data rates all the time. You get in, finish with your transaction, and you get out. And so from the issue point, it is, though, that the industry pushed that as the kind of metric the headline metric to look for in terms of 5G. You're right that maybe most applications don't need that. And we'll get to the perhaps the first potential application to, to monetize 5G, which is broadband. But before we get to that, if you think about, I mean, Apple, Tim Cook gets up there last year and, and makes a big deal about 5G. You obviously sell componentry into that company. What is 5G doing to a phone, to someone's mobile use? Or what application can we see that it's going to enable on a phone um, that you know is more notable than could have been achieved by simply taking this additional mid-band spectrum, C-band or otherwise, and deploying that over LTE? That's, that's a very interesting question, and I want to actually make sure that I address this head on. So, uh, you know, uh, th- there, are, there are two ways of actually looking at it. One is how do existing applications get better with 5G? And then the second answer is, what are the new applications that get enabled because of 5G? So there's like two distinct elements to that. So clearly in the first phase of 5G, we're really going towards what are the existing applications that get better. Let's keep the movie download and file download use cases aside. Mm -hmm. I think, uh, you know, people do it, but at the same time, it's probably, that one is an obvious answer. Absolutely. Big difference in terms of the download speeds and so on. That's fine. But there is something more subtle, which is probably not as obvious, but I want to actually make sure I I address that. If you take a look at, even with with the typical smartphone form factor, take a look at the typical quality of the video that you see today. If you were to compare in contrast to what you used to do like a few years back with 4G, you can actually see that the quality of the video, like the percentage of the areas where you start seeing uh, at least 1080p more consistently, has significantly improved with 5G. It's a very subtle shift. I mean, half the time, I think users kind of expect some quality on, on a phone and, and you know, you, you'll be okay with some... Not so Just good. interesting though, Durga, if I could interrupt you, is that at one point, um, T-Mobile throttled their video usage and the argument by Neville, I think at the time, whether it was or him or someone else at T-Mobile was on a screen size that small that you couldn't even notice the difference in the quality of a throttled LTE connection. So, you know, I'm just trying to put that in the concept of like four phones is 5G really 
you know, yes, it's clearly could improve video, but is that is that going to be noticeable by the end user and perhaps drive any type of differentiation across the operators? I believe, I believe consistently watching 1080p video, yeah, you can clearly notice that because even the, okay. the display has improved quite a bit. I mean, we're not talking about the phones that used to exist three, four years back. So it's not mm-hmm. just 5G, but also when the display improves, then you actually see that. So we we predicted it, we kind of anticipated it, but we are beginning to actually see some of that as well, just in terms of the quality. It's a very subtle shift. And I think the new normal, the expectation is just that. Here's something else that's interesting. Take a look at where we are right now. Now, I understand it. You know, because of the pandemic and a lot of things, and probably even without the pandemic, we would have probably ended up in a similar setting. But one of the other things that we've noticed is uh, if you think of the number of people, and I'm, ha- you know, it's a video call, so I'm holding my phone over here. Even for myself, I don't know the last time I held a phone like this to my ear. I think I've gotten used to, we talked about video calling forever. Yep. I think what has happened in the last one and a half years or so is more often than not, you're actually holding your phone in front of you and you're kind of speaking this way. Video telephony has clearly become a big, uh, uh, you know, there's been a very distinct move towards that over the last one year or so. And that has started, you know, no operator has actually complained about their network capacity. Why? Because the 5G capacity was there, it could handle it. And there was no notion of anyone. I can, you know, I, I can't prove it quite like that. But if you still had what we had before 5G, we would have had issues. If you know, I would, I would, we're definitely going to come back to the uplink uh, portion <laughs> of that. So, but I'm going to put a pin in that one for later. Let, uh, let's go to just broadband as the first application. Yeah. Um, is it, can wireless be competitive with a, just let's forget, let's put fiber aside for a second, but just the cable um, broadband alternatives out there. Can wireless, because Verizon has talked about hitting a billion dollars of broadband um, service revenue, I think by 2023, I, I believe. T-Mobile's talked about adding hundreds of thousands of subs. How 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 big of the broadband market um, can wireless address? Another really good point over there. So I was, you remember what I said about existing applications getting better and, and 5G enabling new applications? One of the first ones that immediately jumps out is what we are seeing with fixed wireless access. You have outdoor units outside your home, outside the enterprise and so on, and providing extremely high data rates in a very reliable manner, extremely high data rates. Now, uh, what we are seeing is that if you take a look at if you take a look at a typical cable connectivity today, it's DOCSIS 3.1 based. So what usually happens is actually most of us, you know, you might have pretty good download speeds, but your upload is going to be throttled at like 25 megabits per second or something like that. Actually, it's kind or of worse. <laughs> I've seen a lot worse. Like 10 megabits per second. Yep. Good luck. And, and by the way, the cable industry has indicated on their conference calls, Tom Rutledge and others, that that's that should be enough uplink for the users. Not when you have a family of four with uh, Zoom calls and distance education going on at the same time. It can get throttled really badly. I mean, uh, that that's definitely the yep. case. Now, what fixed wireless access then brings in is you. We're all used to a certain enterprise uh, uh, grade wireless connectivity at work. And there's been a clear demand for having a similar experience at home as well, working from home and then distance education and so on. From that perspective, even for uh, what we have seen over the last one and a half years or so is a massive uptick in terms of the demand for fixed wireless applications. Uh, and, and, And in fact, if you take a look at the CPEs and the fixed wireless routers that are being yep. installed out there, it's really nicely taken off. And we've also made some interesting points with that. One of the uh, points that used to be made earlier about millimeter wave was, hey, it's, uh, you know, the range is not that good and so on. Actually, we took it upon ourselves. And since middle of last year or so, <clears throat> we've been spending time in rural areas, specifically looking at, you know, if you go to rural areas today, uh, it was it's quite fascinating. The actual so-called broadband data rates are so low, it's it's sad actually to see that. But what we felt was that even with just a handful of sites, we're not adding any new sites at all, just the existing sites, if you go with millimeter wave over there, 
you can dramatically improve the overall broadband connectivity and you can enable all sorts of things with distance education in rural areas for example was one of the issues over there but that message not uh, it was not something that was just understood by regulators and our own government but increasingly by mobile operators who said you know what i have a rural play as well with millimeter wave millimeter wave is not just for the dense urban areas but it actually there is a way for, to look at that in the rural areas as well that's why you saw a bunch of announcements but is it better in the rural areas because you're able to access line of sight is that is that why it's working in those areas not necessarily it was because of the, that was that's only one part of it but yep. the other part of it is that with a handful of sites what you could do with 4g was extremely limited whereas with millimeter wave with all the spatial techniques and whatnot, the capacity is much, much higher. So it's a real step change in terms of the user experience. Well, maybe that's a good pivot into into like what CDM, excuse me, CDMA, what C-band um, means in, in terms of 5G. I mean, I know Pivotal has done a lot with Verizon in terms of extending the reach of millimeter wave in, in given areas. Um, but it seems like Verizon in general is kind of pivoted since spending $54 billion on Spectrum appears to pivoted a bit away from millimeter wave and is much more focused, at least in the near term, um, on C-band. Obviously, they can walk and chew gum at the same time and do both. But um, is C-band, will C-band play a role in, in home broadband competitiveness against the cable companies? Or are you, are you going to need as a wireless operator millimeter wave in order to truly compete? Uh, okay, so there's two questions over there. So let me actually start with, from our perspective, the question is really addressed to Verizon in some sense, but at least from our standpoint, what we have well, Verizon's, seen- you know, been the kind of the millimeter, I mean, AT&T has really not talked too much about millimeter wave, although they've got their own trials and T-Mobile is certainly focused on 2.5, so. What I wanted to say is that, uh, you know, our take on the situation, what we are seeing is that what Verizon is doing is, in addition to keeping on moving the chains on millimeter wave, they're bringing in the C-band as Moving well. the chains, meaning improve it with, with using things like Pivotal or whatever else. And add new cities for millimeter wave coverage, add, add more coverage with that, add more sites. It's been, it's been a gradual role in that sense, but we have not seen any slowdown in the momentum towards that compared to where it was like a year or two back. I, I think that continues to happen. Mm-hmm. At the same time, one of the things that we have seen is that the C-band spectrum, I remember that it's a nice blend of coverage and capacity as well. So think about the following way. Remember back in 2019, what was done is you have 4G and you add millimeter wave yep. and you kind of hang on to both. Now, if you think of, I don't want to rely upon 4G, 4G goes away. What you want to do then is use millimeter wave, but you need some equivalent of 4G in the sub uplink. And the sub six spectrum, that's where C band comes in as well. So now your C band is your anchor. Now you have both of these, and it's all only 5G at this point in time. So, it, but, but hold on, Durga, in the millimeter wave deployments that Verizon was doing, they were using LTE because of uplink. And the same challenge um, seems to exist with C band in that C band would also need some lower band uplink in order to have it perform as well. Um, as the AWS footprint that they already have deployed. Is that not true? That's not necessarily the case. So one of the things with C-band that has, uh, you know, because of the usage of the massive MIMO rollout is that uh, there's a lot of these MIMO capabilities that start coming in into the uplink as well. Simple point over here. In 4G, we never had uplink MIMO. MIMO was never used in the uplink. We would do Mm -hmm. carrier aggregation, but we would never do uplink MIMO. Uh, uh, if you take a look at in China is mainstream. It's been like that for a while. We are now going to be doing exactly the same thing in, in, in the, you know, in other parts of the world as well. So using the spatial techniques in C-band actually starts improving uplink coverage. And keep in mind at the same time, whenever possible, you also have the capability of doing uplink on millimeter wave as and when needed, as and when needed. You might not need it most of the time, but it's certainly possible. And so we actually see that move when C-band comes in, we kind of see that as a transition to pure 5G standalone mode, mix and match of C-band and millimeter wave. Got it. So in that deployment, you're not talking about adding additional uplink because Neville Ray from T-Mobile CTO has talked about that need. There's a number of engineers. I think this is even a topic we talked about on our last call. So 
MIMO, obviously early stages of deployment, um, but in your view, MIMO completely mitigates the propagation issues that C-band has without getting additional uplink or, and why would Neville believe otherwise? I, I think even from Neville's perspective, I think, uh, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, my perspective is that I think when he was talking about that, he was looking at it from the uh, FTD spectrum over there. Clearly in the FTD spectrum, you cannot use a lot of these techniques, mm-hmm. but in there, you know, the 2.6 gigahertz bands and so on, all these techniques still apply. So I think the general thinking when you kind of move forward. If someone, I'm sorry to interrupt, but if someone's deploying, you're true that Neville's doing TDD, but isn't Verizon and AT&T planning to do a TDD deployment as well on their C-band spectrum? Yeah, they are. They are. I'm, I'm just saying that. I'm just saying that from T-Mobile perspective, they have a mix and match of FTD and TDD spectrum using that uh, 2.6 gigahertz in TDD mm-hmm. and FTD in the 600 megahertz. Verizon, as an example, has the new C-band, the 3.7 gigahertz spectrum. Plus, the FTD spectrum is is not new spectrum. It's not like a brand new spectrum, but using DSS to complement over there. So if you kind of look at it that way, let's say that you transition to standalone mode, then the cleanest way to do that is rely upon a good combination of both C-band and FTD DSS. But probably, depending upon which region you are in and so on, you might end up relying a little bit more on on uh, on um, the C-band TDD. So it's just a different, slightly different takes on, on the same thing. My expectation is that by the time we are done with this, everyone, even T-Mobile, talks about the, the three-layered cake of FTD plus TDD plus sure. And Verizon has been talking about the same thing as well. What I mentioned earlier is, all the entities, China Mobile, T-Mobile, Verizon, they all had different starting points. One started with millimeter wave, one started with mid-band, one started with FTD, but they're all gravitating towards the same spot, the three-layered cake. Everyone lands up with all the three spectrum, and now it's a matter of how they want to use it from that point onwards. So then let's talk about another kind of debate that's in the market where um, T-Mobile has the very deep 2.5 spectrum, um, and Verizon has 160 megahertz of spectrum on the come from C-band. So both deep spectrum positions, both claim that their spectrum is superior in terms of being able to deploy it over the existing AWS footprint cells, you know, where the cell density is today. Um, how is that possible? Because I would have thought that 2.5 being lower can travel further. I think Verizon has... Um, made some accurate um, statements about, you know, the, some of the power issues that 2.5 has. Where does the truth lie in terms of 2.5 versus C-band? On a similar, on an apples-to-apples comparison, if I use the same type of footprint, the same MIMO antennas from the same vendors, which network will perform better? I think uh, it really comes down to your assumptions. If you just go with physics, obviously 2.5 gigahertz propagation Pure physics, all things remaining the same, will be better than three. That's not a bad thing to rely on, physics. Pure physics. However, there is a point over there, which is, well, what's your starting point on C-band versus what's your starting point on on the 2.6 gigahertz? So, for example, when you start, if you, let's say you're starting off at massive MIMO, and that time we are not talking of four or eight transmit antennas. This is like 64 and 32 transmit antennas. That changes the game in C-band quite a bit. Now you can do exactly. I mean, how how big are those antennas? Must be massive though. Like if you're going beyond an eight by eight, we're talking about two dot five. We're not talking about millimeter wave massive MIMO antennas. These are massive antennas. They're going to have to be upgraded on existing towers that hopefully have enough structure to hold them. And is there no upgrade required on the device side as well in order to fully benefit from that? No, it's actually it's not too bad. In fact, uh, a okay. proof point of that, a proof point of that is uh, take a look at what uh, China Mobile did. So China Mobile, for example, uh, their entire five G deployment was based upon two point six gigahertz in the beginning, right? Mm-hmm. But they had existing four G deployments at exactly the same time. So they added in the massive MIMO capability to the existing sites. So the antenna form factors and so on, they're not as bad. I mean, uh, when we these talk- ten- about- Do these antennas exist though? Like is Verizon deploying or, AT- or T-Mobile deploying these types of massive MIMO antennas today? And if not, when can we expect to start to see that ha- happen? Because my understanding is that those just don't even exist today. 
in, 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 in terms of production quantities? I think from a commercialization standpoint, all the tier one vendors have their pretty, pretty strong portfolio in that, in that sense. So I'm not actually worried about that portion. Okay. Really, you know, the, the question is more about the deployment pace and how that happens. And that's, that's probably a question best addressed by Verizon, but I'm not worried about it in terms of our products available. Absolutely. There's like a very large number of tier one infra vendors that have their products in that space. So, so Verizon, T-Mobile, let's assume that Verizon's either has to add more cell sites or, or, or first of all, let's go back to this uplink. Can Verizon reduce the number of cell sites that they need to deploy in order to deliver C-band coverage by adding supplemental uplink to the network design? Um, I don't, I don't know about reducing the number of cell sites. I think the general tendency would be to take all of your existing 4G footprint and see what fraction of that footprint needs to be upgraded to C-band and start from there. And then, and then- Verizon claims they're going to put C-band on every single tower and they want C-band coverage throughout the United, the United States. So if, I, if I'm Verizon CTO and I walk in and say, okay, in order to accomplish that, and I have C-band versus 2.5, you know, and I have X number of cell sites that I need to do coverage. You know, what is the reduction of, of cell sites that I that I can deploy or that I need to deploy if I added supplemental uplink? Yeah, uh, we haven't done that analysis. I wouldn't be able to like. Immediately... Is it even is it lower or not? You know, it's it's depending upon the interside distance that exists in the Verizon topology versus what exists elsewhere. I think the analysis can come out favorable in one way or the other, but it's okay. hard. At this point. So then let's say that they've deployed Verizon and, and T-Mobile have deployed 100 megahertz of spectrum depth um, in C-band and or 2.5, depending on the operator. Is that enough um, to deliver competitive broadband service to uh, a typical home customer? I think based upon what we have seen uh, in, uh, in China, where most of the deployments are 100 megahertz, you know, four by four and downlink, 100 megahertz and uplink MIMO put together. I think the overall user experience there from what we have seen is really positive, really good actually. So I think it's a good starting point, really great starting point. What what, what ends up being the role of small cells? It feels like with C-band, the initial focus is, you know, to upgrade macro towers. You've talked a lot, obviously, on this call about massive MIMO antennas. I don't imagine a massive MIMO antenna going onto a lamp, a lamp post, um, but I guess there'll be some version of that. Um, what happens to the small cells? Is this just a millimeter wave layer um, for the small cell ecosystem, or what? What are they? What role do they play? So, uh, actually, that's another good question over there. It is true that small cells was the natural landing spot for millimeter wave, but it's not just for millimeter wave. In mm-hmm. fact. The idea of using small cells to augment capacity and spot capacity in different locations, even using uh, the uh, uh, mid-band C, uh, you know, TDD spectrum is increasingly popular. If you kind of step back from the situation and see, okay, what happened in the US versus the rest of the world? Because in the US, a lot of the initial action was on millimeter wave when it came to the high bands or in FTD. And that's why there was a focus on millimeter wave for small cells. That will continue. But increasingly, we are seeing small cell footprint coming in through the mid bands as well. Mid bands as well, and these these uh, 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 are used for all kinds of applications, ranging from okay, augmenting outdoor capacity, but also indoor small cells with that enterprise applications or campus environments and whatnot. Uh, so it's not just about millimeter wave by the time it comes. To small but if you're Verizon and, and you're sitting on, you have your low band, and then you've got this really chunky. C-band position, and you've got this massive millimeter wave position, and you're building your network. Um, doesn't it add complication to put mid-band on at these different elevations? Isn't it easier to just pick one of those spectrum bands, perhaps millimeter wave, at the small cell layer, and then leave mid-band and lower to the buildings in the urban markets, and then obviously the the towers as you hit the suburbs and rural? So two things. I mean, uh, you. Remember that even in the mid-band, in addition to C-band, there's also the CBRS spectrum, what's called as the, the yep. 3550 to 3700. So that portion of the spectrum has its own unique characteristics, which makes it very suitable for uh, for uh, uh, small cells. Right? Yep. You have that along with millimeter wave. So that's like a good starting point. But even yep. in 
and eventually there is a role for small cells as well depending upon are you talking of indoor deployments where you have okay you want to actually augment the capacity over there and that's a place actually where small cells come in very handy so from our perspective the cbr spectrum for both outdoor and indoor c band or 2.6 gigahertz depending upon which way you look at it for indoor applications or campus environment applications and then uh, finally for millimeter wave these are like natural starting points for small cells uh, one of the points that you made earlier is can i really put a massive mimo site in every single location that i want maybe maybe not but wherever you do not that's a place where small cells naturally come in as right. well and that's that's like a simplistic way of looking at it so let's ask the question the opposite way. Can CBRS and the, the government's going to be auctioning three to three four five to three five five um, have a home on macro towers as well as small cells? So CBRS, I think, naturally lends itself to small cells. Uh, it's mm -hmm. a little you, you could get away with. I wouldn't call them as massive MIMO macro cells, but they're more like micro cells, a little mm -hmm. higher than small cells over there. And that's perfectly fine. The rules for the, the the rest of the band, which is lower than the 3550 uh, megahertz, I think they're still being written as we speak. We don't know the, the full-blown ERP limitations and so on. So we, we'll see how that plays out. Okay. So you're seeing it across the board. So now if I look at my current cell density and I'm, you know, uh, any wireless operator, I've got a certain number of macro towers, a certain number of small cells. Obviously, small cells are earlier stage. So they will grow faster. But how, how much... I guess, like, what type of small cell growth should we expect? And should there be macro growth? Again, getting back to this uplink or not uplink on C-band, I mean, C-band and 2.5 are both higher frequencies than AWS. I understand that AWS was obviously densified for capacity reasons. So maybe you're over-densified and it can handle 2.5 or C-band. But you, when you get outside of the cities into the suburbs, um, how do you see densification in terms of infrastructure playing out between macro and small cells? And how big can the, the number of small cells in America uh, get to? Well, right now, there is still a pretty good footprint of existing small cells based upon 4G, what was done with LA and so on. So those those are the natural sites where we can start mm -hmm. to see uh, uh, the sub-6 small cells in addition to millimeter wave. As for massive MIMO-based densification, well, you know, massive MIMO requirements are typically in terms of the, the towers that exist today. So those would be the natural starting points. Yep. Any densification beyond the existing sites, I mean, that really comes down to the operator as to how they want to do that. But I think there's a long runway before we, we come to that question as to do we need additional densification of the macro sites beyond what already exists. And there's a work to be done just to get there in terms of, you know, covering the entire macro 4G footprint today with 5G massive MIMO. Once meaning it, that meaning that the primary the primary objective is get massive MIMO on the existing towers, upgrade it, which incre increases performance, and then over time, as that kind of wears down, then you start to to increase the densification on macro as well. That's right, and remember that while you're doing the first thing, you also have the small cell based. Uh, there's an existing small cell footprint of 4G, which still needs to then gradually start. You know, you have to upgrade that with with whether you want to do C band or whether you want to do millimeter wave. So there's a lot of that. So once you have both of these, then it's a natural question to ask at this point in time. Uh, yeah, that's that's the way. To I don't, so I understand that that's how it would work in the cities. But again, in the suburbs, I find that a bit more confusing because I just remember when T-Mobile and AT&T lit up 700 megahertz spectrum in my neighborhood and it, I could actually get coverage at my house. So let's go the opposite way. If, if they have AWS spectrum and it reaches a certain port, port or part, excuse me, of, of my town, and now they put C-band or 2.5 on that same cell site, how is the coverage gonna be the same based on physics? So remember that with massive MIMO, the ARP limits actually go up quite a bit. I mean, now you're talking 70 dBm ARP. So you've kind of compensated for that. And using the spatial techniques, you're not narrowly, you're doing all the beam forming techniques and whatnot. That's really the game changer when it comes to C-band. So in right? your view that that even in, forget about the, the um, the urban markets where are more dense than you need to from a physics standpoint in sub in the suburbs where it's very difficult to get towers and they've probably been more finely network engineers. Do you think that um, C-band and 2.5 can replicate AWS coverage through the use of massive MIMO antennas? Okay. This should be very interesting to see how that part rolls out then. That's awesome. Um, 
Can we shift to Open RAN? Um, yeah. What do you see is kind of, you know, when we think about like open at the edge and then the virtualized core, what is more important and what role or how important are, are either of them um, to enabling 5G applications? Okay, so maybe I'll spend about five minutes on this because this is a topic on which we've been quite vocal since uh, maybe October of last year when we made our first announcements with the product portfolio into that. So as Qualcomm, we've, we've, we've always had uh, uh, small cell-based uh, solutions that, that the chipsets and the software that power small cells in 4G days. And uh, maybe not everyone remembers this, that back in the 3G days, before that, the decade before, uh, we used to have the uh, uh, what, what was called as the cell site modem or the CSM that would actually power the 3G networks. So uh, we decided, uh, at, uh, you know, over the last two, three years or so that we're going to be entering the chipsets and software uh, powering the infrastructure of 5G, but consistent with the RAM virtualization themes along with the usage of open interfaces. So that was the major announcement that we made back in October of last year. Usually when we make a product announcement, it's just us and we make an announcement, but we felt that it was good to kind of check with uh, some of the mobile operators to see are they interested. We were extremely surprised and pleasantly surprised and probably not surprised, so we kind of anticipated it. <laughs> the fact that they all joined in was kind of huge. We had more than 15 operators join in globally, everyone in the US, a lot of the majority, the big ones in, in Europe, everyone in Japan, Korea. Uh, that was really big actually. Uh, and then on top of that, most recently, when we had our 5G summit in um, uh, in May of this year, uh, we invited Vodafone uh, to give a comment as to their perspective. You know, it's great that they like us, but it was kind of good to see their perspective on that. And I actually suggest people to take a look at that video. And Mauricio, maybe we should send out that video separately as well, because it is part of that. That'd but be great. Yago actually kind of really drilled down and he did a really good job. Uh, you know, it was unscripted. We just told him, hey, you can come in and speak. And he said, I'm really excited to work with Qualcomm. And let me tell you why. And, and I'd, I'd much rather you actually take a look at that video, because it really explains how he thought we were changing the game over there. And that was that's a really important thing, really important thing. Look, as Qualcomm, if there is one thing that we know, we know how to build radios. And, and if it, that is something that's literally our DNA. And we felt that as we go into uh, the 5G network evolution, the traditional networks as they exist are not scalable to all kinds of topologies. We felt that it was good to actually disaggregate some of the functionalities. It was already mm -hmm. happening, by the way. It wasn't like it wasn't happening. But I think our entry has made it a lot more legitimate from that perspective. There's the radio units, someone does the radios. That means you have all the transceivers, the front end, the antennas, the whole deal. Like Airspan or Fujitsu or whoever it is. Nokia and then, even. And then someone does and someone does the, the base pan and the DU portion. That's where the, the L2 processing occurs. It's fascinating to see that space where you know we come in and, and we announce an accelerator card that simply plugs in to a server. Imagine the following. You have your baseband processing now being done in a data center out there. And all you need is an accelerator card that plugs in. The baseband processing is really being done there. The rest of it is the L2 and the L3 processing that's in a data center. This is the kind of a network that we would really like to have. You have radios on site. So the towers still exist. You still have the radios over there. Everything else is really happening in the data center. I mean, that's like the real way of actually going about it. So this has become a very rich and fertile area for a large number of entities to come in. We are doing our part. Our part is do the baseband processing, the accelerator card, plug and play operation. Similarly on the radios, what we are doing for both millimeter wave and subsets. And on radios, another thing that we are actually really focusing on, and that's what we get a lot of uh, feedback on is, we come in with the mentality of low power implementation. It's not something that's very natural in general, but because we come in from a device perspective, we are always focused on what is the lowest power implementation, the power consumption at some of these sites, especially with massive MIMO, you're operating at 70 dBm ARP. Yep. You know, you can easily go up to like a kilowatt that you're running at a site. So by making sure that the power consumption is pretty low, uh, that also helps from an operator OPEX standpoint as well. So we found a lot of positive traction on that one. Now, here's what is happening. Action on the ground. You have 
it is only expected that the first movers in the space are those who are greenfield operators. Two examples are Rakuten yes. and Dish. Yep. Don't have any legacy baggage. It's easy to architect it exactly that way and start going. And that's what is happening. Rakuten already launched that way. And we are a part of that network, by the way. Similarly, Dish is launching exactly along those lines. And there was an announcement that we did specifically with Dish. They were not part of the original 15, but we had a, you know, just a bilateral announcement on that one. So they've started on that one. But it's not just them. All the operators who have their legacy 4G and 3G footprint as well, Verizon, uh, Vodafone, Docomo, I'm just picking different regions. Uh, they all actually have had exactly the same thoughts and that's why they were a part of this announcement and they've made their own plans. But what are the challenges that those companies face in evolving their networks to this type of um, design as opposed to a Dish or uh, Rakuten who's well, going there from the get-go? Well, so Dish and Rakuten have the luxury of not having any legacy baggage, so they don't have to strip out functionality, bifurcate the network yep. or do anything of that sort. Whereas for anyone who uh, has all of that, uh, you have to figure out a way of at least separating out up to 3G and keep that out because it's a little easier to do 4G and 5G together, but bringing in 3G would be, that's a circuit switch network. It's a very different topology in itself. So you can see that every operator is making their plans. They've made their own announcements in the space. In addition to with us, they've made their own announcements in the space, but everyone is taking those steps. So let's just assume for sake of argument, they just, they have other priorities. Um, and that part, that priority falls um, to the wayside for some period of time, or it just takes longer because integration is tough. What advantages would DISH have um, as a greenfield entrant? Let's say DISH cranks out 200 million pops. They've got this kind of virtualized network and it's this kind of the new, this is the future of, of all networks. In, in, in terms of applications or how um, enterprise or even consumers would use their network, what would the advantages ultimately be? So keeping DISH aside, because I guess the question really is about for anyone who adopts, by the time they have sure. a network, then what are the uh, benefits that you get? Well, it's open interface and disaggregation, but there's a point to disaggregate. The rationale for disaggregation is when you do it that way, some portions of the functionality can be much better implemented. Like I've just made this example of a data center. Now imagine you're running some edge compute applications, right? Mm -hmm. If you want to do that, it's the same data center where you're doing the baseband processing, you're doing the edge computing processing and exactly they're co-located now. And because they're co-located, you can actually bring in a lot of other either new applications, reduce the latency, you can do... Uh, you know, what is typically called as edge compute involves a bunch of things that includes both the device and at the edge without necessarily going to some other server that is located somewhere else. So that's like one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is it allows for a much easier and eventual deployment of what we call today as private networks. Networks which are confined to certain regions. It's just easier to do it that way. If you think of, you know, digitization of a manufacturing plant, it was thought of as a myth these days, it's not. In fact, there's so a lot. So, who would want a private network? Why would they want it? And why in this? Because you're still a segmented in inside a overall public network that Dish or whoever is building. So, kind of walk us through that because I know private networks is always this thing that's listed. Um, but why does the end enterprise customer want this kind of private slice? What are they doing with it? Um, and, and what are the benefits? Yeah. There are two kinds of private networks. One is a private slice of a public network mm -hmm. and one is a private network, which is kind of confined uh, uh, to itself. Standalone, yeah, forget about those. Let's put those aside. <laughs> so, so this same question, when we sat down with the eventual end customers and enterprises in the manufacturing segment, I remember asking the same question to them. Tell me, why do you want to have a 5G private network? What is it that you think it brings to the table? 5G is great. I can tell you a lot about it. But and who were you asking this question to? To the end customers, enterprise CIOs, enterprise okay. CEOs, and manufacturing plant CEOs. I was just gotcha. asking. Yep. One of the things, and I'll probably give an example from a manufacturing plant, just because there was a really great conversations in Germany on that one. Uh, one of the points that they actually made very clearly is that there's a lot of data that moves back and forth inside the manufacturing plant in itself. In fact, they would like to, you know, as a COO, I'm actually interested in improving my overall efficiency of, of operations. And when I look at it that way, I want to be able to do a lot of localized data analytics, collect a bunch of data that comes in 
And I cannot rely upon wire line everywhere. I'm dealing with assembly lines. There are things that are being moved from point A to point B. I can't keep bringing things down and then take another two days to calibrate and bring it up again and so on. Can I have a wireless solution that gets me there? Okay, check. That's certainly possible. Clearly 5G was designed for that. My next question to them is, well, you should be able to use Wi-Fi as well. The answer is actually very interesting. It is true that you can use Wi-Fi because you know there, there are places where you might be able to do that. And it's not so much about unlicensed versus licensed spectrum. It actually comes down to the fact, I need reliable quality of service. I need to have predictable quality of service over there. And if you take a look at the industrial ethernet protocols, they all rely upon things like time synchronized networks. There's the heartbeat messages that come in from every machine and so on. It just so turns out that 5G is a natural fit over there. Sure. Bottom line, our conversations when it comes to 5G private networks and manufacturing plants is not with the CIO of that plant, it's with the COO. And that is a big difference. 5G is an operational technology. It's not an information technology the way that they actually think about it. That is where we found, okay, I need to have that. Uh, it improves my overall productivity and that's why I need 5G. So with 5G gives you the connectivity, I understand that, but add on now what's the benefit of of uh you know again the virtualized core um as you described it yeah so now if you think about it so this is the connectivity with remember the ultra reliable and low latency communication that actually will be relevant for some of the applications over there but now think about the following if you take a classical network i have a citywide network based upon a non-oran topology non-virtualized non-oran topology mm -hmm. Can I take the network and dump it inside the manufacturing plant? No, it's very hard. It's complicated because you would need to do a lot of processing inside each of the boxes and then you can't actually distribute it that way. You don't even have the ability to uh, you know, install some of these things. What you can do on the other hand is just have the radio access points in, in the locations. You have the right backhaul that takes you into some server that you control. That's where the rest of the processing is being done. You can do localized data analytics. And to be very clear, as far as the core is concerned, it's a virtualized core. You can place it wherever you want. It could be core on-premises, or it could be in some other secure location where you have several sites, several manufacturing plants, and all of that being done over there. But what you described sounds like someone building a purpose-built purpose like private LTE network to the extent like an electric utility is using Anterix to do with their own spectrum and their own radios. How does, how does a wireless operator like Dish or Verizon, if they upgrade their networks, why is it their experience better via an open RAN versus, you know, the enterprise customer themselves picking their own servers and doing all the, and putting radios in their manufacturing plan or whatever it is? I think globally, you'll see both. Globally, you'll see both. So for example, in Germany, what they did was they said, this 100 megahertz of spectrum, the 3.7 to 3.8 gigahertz of spectrum is dedicated for just... The industrial applications. That's it. It can be used for anything else. It can be used by mobile operators for anything else. So that was like one extreme. So which means if I'm a, a Bosch or a Siemens or someone else, I have I can apply for my own spectrum. It's localized and I can do that. In but but that's not the only that's one way of doing it. The other way of doing that is if I am a, a mobile operator, then using the virtualized VRAN along with open interfaces. I can create a private slice in a much cleaner and simpler manner and now have the private slice dedicated towards some of these private networks. How soon do you think these enterprise customers that you've spoken with are willing to commit to trials? Um, you know, cause this is early and obviously if Dish is successful or Rekathon is successful, it's going to drive faster adoption by the legacy operators. So where are they in, in their decision tree? in kind of moving forward with, with some of these applications? Uh, suffice it to say that, I mean, I'll, I'll only be able to speak uh, to, the, to the extent uh, from, a, from a, what we've announced publicly, but sure. the leading indication of that would be the fact that if you follow what Vodafone, in addition to them working with us, you know, uh, they made their plans for uh, ORAN-based trials, and they have a certain timeline associated with that, with our reference designs being a part of it. We expect to see trials. Uh, there are some smaller, much, much smaller scale trials that are occurring right now, but the real ones, we expect them sometime starting next year mm -hmm. and then heading into 23 timeframe and then commercialization 
thereafter, depending upon you know when and, and which. how do you think that market size compares to the consumer wireless market? So remember that this actually then takes us into this opens up. Once you have the ability to deploy an ORAN based network with RAN virtualization, mm-hmm. it really opens up all these other networks that we are talking about. Every single, the private slice of a public network, yep. the, private, the whole thing actually suddenly opens up. And that's a huge, huge opportunity, actually. But how it, so that's huge. Huge is, an, is a, a word that we hear often. <laughs> and then when we try and size this market, it becomes more difficult. So without trying to pin you to a number, if you were to think about, the consumer wireless market, which generates in the U.S. alone, hundreds of billions of dollars of annual service revenue from from customers. What is this enterprise and these new applications and the future of data and edge compute like? How will that compare in terms of the consumer wireless market that already exists? I don't want to put down numbers over here. But I'm ask you numbers: greater, fifty percent less, twenty percent less. I mean, just a just a kind of a sense of the size. It, it's it's pretty high. It's pretty high, and I wouldn't be. You know, there's lots of market reports that already indicate exactly the kinds of numbers. I've looked at them. There's not a lot of data behind that. Backs them. That, is, that, is, that is probably true, but uh, yeah, I wouldn't be able to put down any numbers. Okay, so then let, let's shift to how you enable some of these stuff. And and Altio Star and Mavenir have been two kind of high profile names. When I think about this, I'm like, okay, if I'm locking into Altio Star or Mavenir, isn't that no different than locking into like a Nokia or a Samsung um, or Ericsson in terms of saying like, once I select that vendor, then yes, I have options on the radio front. There's lots of different options that I can have, but I'm kind of locked into that vendor. So why wouldn't I just kind of stick with my traditional, you know, Ericsson or Nokia, assuming that those companies can provide me with that platform um, that enables a lot of these things. So uh, I think, I think, uh, uh, there's there's more to it than that because uh, you know so far it has been uh, you know one of the things that Oran brings to the table is that you can you can optimize at different levels. For example, you can have more than one vendor for uh, a radio unit, and you can yep. keep one vendor for the DU and so on. So the rationale for picking just one vendor across the board or several vendors, depending upon which place you are, I think it comes down to a lot of things. I mean, you also have. The don't you feel like, sorry to interrupt, Durga, but don't you feel like with uh, Rakuten buying Altio Store outright now that they're creating their own version of Nokia, where if I'm going to go with RTP and use Altio Star, then I'm going to use whatever radio vendors that Rakuten or Rakuten is going to be pushing, which is no different than maybe what Nokia and Ericsson have, have created in terms of an ecosystem, RCP, excuse me. Strictly speaking, I mean, Altiostar is a is a L2 software vendor. So that means it's really at the L2 and L3 software vendor. So it's really about some portions of the DU. But that, what you mentioned about Rakuten, I mean, after after they bought Altiostar, there's still, you know, there's the baseband processing, there's still the RU portion and so on. So I wouldn't quite equate that to someone like Nokia who basically has the whole thing put together. Actually- For sure. Yeah, I didn't mean to, obviously Nokia has, has a lot more. I'm just thinking about one kind of element of, of lock-in to a, to a certain vendor or technology partner. Rakuten has been using Altio Star for their own network. Um, yep. so, uh, you know, that's also a question that they can answer best, but I would actually put it in this way. Uh, the fact that Rakuten, um, you know, when they acquired Altiostar, they have their own reasons. But what is clear is that anyone who's in the infrastructure domain today, I think it is very important for you to have a play consistent with ORAN and RAN virtualization. Because if you stick to the traditional paradigm only, that's going to be a problem moving forward. It is clear. It is inevitable now. It's a matter of time. It's not a matter of, is it happening? Is it real or not? I think we've kind of gone past that question at this point in time. Uh, it's really about, are you positioning yourself or you know, pick a date? Maybe it'll happen in 24, the commercialization, the, the first brownfield operator who deploys ORAN. Let's pick a date. Maybe it's 24, maybe 25, maybe 23. I don't know. But at that point in time, everyone should have a solution that caters to that kind of a deployment because that's how we see things happen. Let's kind of finish off on the last topic in, you know, one of the hot topics in the overall area has been Leo's led by Starlink and their kind of very high profile um, launch. But more recently, um, AST is, has talked about having Leo's that communicate 
with cell phones using existing cellular frequencies. Iridium also has has made reference to the fact that, look, they have an existing LEO network. It's using an existing spectrum. They could enable a user's phone for messaging if they just, if they, meaning you, (laughs) just integrated that spectrum into the componentry that was going to end up in all the great cell phones that exist and get sold throughout the world. So kind of give us your sense of where the future is in terms of connectivity outside of the terrestrial networks. All right. So uh, full disclosure, uh, when I started in Qualcomm 23, 24 years back, uh, I started off in Global Star. That was our project back then. So I, I worked for two, three years in SATCOM. So I'm very familiar with all the uh, all the details of how things are. So I've been watching this space in general, like what has changed over the last 20 years. One of the things that has definitely happened is the economics of uh, launching the satellites and so on. Sure. They, you know, kind of, there's been a big difference. I remember back in the day. Thank you, Elon. <laughs> the rest of it hasn't changed. The rest of it mm-hmm. hasn't changed. The Leo constellations, I mean, in the end, you have the two kinds of constellations, whether they are bent pipe, uh, which means you do all the processing on the ground, yep. or you do a limited amount of processing up there, or you do all the processing like Iridium does. Uh, truth be told, it's a little too early to speculate how this can happen in a smartphone. I believe it can be done. That's one of the reasons why, as Qualcomm, we've also been very uh, prominent in terms of talking of the, you know, the next version of uh, 5G release 17 has something called uh, NTN or non-terrestrial networks. Uh, that's what it is called in release 17. It's a study uh, which, uh, you know, it's it's a it's a catch-all phrase as to can we have 5G-based satcoms? I think that's the question that's being addressed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe, I mean, just looking at the, the high level uh, uh, with some work, you have to make some modifications to 5G. It can be done, but it has to, we have to do some work onto that. So right now at this point in time, we're kind of looking at the specifications to see how they evolve. We know what to do uh, once the specs land up at the right spot. And once we have the right things in place, we know what to do. But at the same time, it's very early to say anything about it. So that's what is happening in the 5G, 3GPP specification timeframe. As for the rest of the existing deployments, yeah, I mean, Starlink is the one, the latest one that has uh, had their uh, commercial- which is, a fixed, which is a fixed deployment. But on the mobile side of things, if you look at AST, um, who's proposing to connect with using existing cellular frequencies and existing technology, so no change to the phone, um, as opposed to maybe an Iridium, which is not going to give you any type of real bandwidth, but some type of messaging, but that would require, I think, a change to the phone. Do either of those approaches to the market, um, is one better than the other, more likely to occur over a shorter period of time? I I don't think, uh, yeah, hard for me to speculate. I mean, I haven't paid enough attention to the low-level details of uh, At least what I'm familiar with Iridium just because they've been around for a longer period of time, but AST I haven't really gone into the low level detail. So no comment. Is the cost of, of doing an Iridium type implementation, do you think too material for a device maker to, like I'm sure they can do special purpose devices that people are willing to spend more for, but you know, if, if a large device maker had the option to say like, hey, I'm gonna make my phones work in locations that go beyond terrestrial. And I'm going to take advantage of the eSIM at the same time. Is that incremental cost to enable something like that um, at this point too prohibitive versus what the market opportunity is there? Yeah, I can't answer that one. I, I don't I haven't uh, really looked into the details of that. Okay. Um, we just had one question in the Q&A and let's just get to that. Sorry, and if there's other questions, you want to fire them in there now as we kind of close out here. Um, Question was in urban areas. Um, this is, I guess, a quote for you: "The best experience is from millimeter wave." Um, and the question then is: How does this statement consider indoor versus outdoor use, um, oh. and indoor versus outdoor deployments for millimeter wave? It's it's for both actually, because uh, millimeter wave is not just an outdoor uh, use case. Actually, millimeter wave uh, based uh, small cells can be deployed both outdoor and indoor, and they have been deployed both outdoor and indoor. And so my comment is, I'm not referring to out-to-in coverage. I'm not referring to a user who's indoor, who's being served by an outdoor small cell. I'm referring to a situation where you have outdoor small cells serving outdoor users and indoor yep. uh, small cells serving indoor users. And, and that was where my comment was really on. 
Understood. So, so, which is another way of saying that millimeter wave still has maybe the challenge of, from an outdoor deployment standpoint, unless there's a CPE device like something okay. that yeah. case by case basis. So, for instance, in the U.S., where we have, we don't necessarily have uh, you know brick and concrete construction everywhere. We have typically wood construction and so on. You might be able to get away with some portions like that. It's a little harder by the time you get into you know the. European deployments, for example, it, it gets a little harder just because propagation is much worse at that point in time. But you can still get away with it. Hey, Walter, just say a time check. Uh, Durga's got that. I was just about to end it, Mauricio. Yeah. So Durga and Mauricio, thank you very much um, for spending this time. Well, we, you know, we're obviously very interested to see where 5G goes from here. 2022, hopefully, is a much bigger year than this year. All right. Thanks, thanks. guys. Everyone. All right, bye. Bye. Bye.